Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and thank you for tuning in today. And I know I put out onto Facebook and Twitter and social media about this episode in particular, and a lot of you uh, emailed and tweeted and Facebooked a lot of questions, so don't worry. We are going to get to all of those questions today, hopefully. Um, That being said... Today's episode is all about the psychology behind chronic pain. So as physical therapists and as health and wellness professionals, a lot of the people that we see and that come to us are coming to us because they have pain. So today, to kind of help us through the psychology behind chronic pain, I'm happy to have on the show Dr. Tiffany Griffiths. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who has private practices in Dunmore and Exeter, Pennsylvania. She is from the Scranton area, northeastern Pennsylvania, as am I, um, where she received her bachelor's degree from the University of Scranton, and she went on to pursue her doctorate in clinical psychology at the Illinois School of Professional Psychology in Chicago, now known as Argosy University Chicago Campus. So, uh, Dr. Griffiths, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. Okay, so like I said, today we're sort of talking about the psychology behind pain, and specifically chronic pain, a lot of uh, big, huge reason why most people seek medical care in this country. I mean, chronic low back pain alone costs the country more than the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq combined, so we're talking billions of dollars. So why did you choose to work with this population, these people in chronic pain? Well, it came um, primarily from my own chronic pain experiences and um, many, many, many years of trying this treatment, that treatment, this medication, that medication, um, until finally deciding to use some of what I was learning. And I was, um, I would say, probably mid-20s when I first started experiencing chronic pain. So entered school, um, grad school just a few years after that and started to say, well, you know what, I'm going to be teaching this to other people, so maybe I should try it myself. So when I first found out about the relaxation response, I started um, taking some yoga classes, learning about mindfulness, and started to incorporate that into my everyday life. And I started to finally see a difference, much more of a difference than I saw with the medications that I took, for example. So it was the combination of um, the beha- some of the behavioral changes that I made, whether it be diet, sleep, exercise, um, doing some things like acupuncture and physical therapy. Um, water therapy was very effective, but as well as the mindfulness, meditation, yoga, stretching, um, all of that combined. And stress reduction was a big part of it, too. So I finally started to see that, you know, I was feeling better and better and better. So that's where it comes from. And I think when I moved back to the area, my doctors were seeing how well I was doing. So they just started referring to me as a result of that. Which makes perfect sense. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, it makes sense that you go through something that's very personal and then you really have that need to kind of help others because what you did sort of helped you and you kind of just want to pay it forward almost. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so now let's get into your treatment approach. So what is your approach So, with a patient with chronic pain? So someone shows up at your clinic and 
and how do you approach their treatment? Okay. Well, the first step is always doing a very good assessment, obviously. Um, I like to work very closely with their MD to try to get a sense of what kind of testing has been done, what has been ruled out. So once we can get a lot of the medical stuff established, then I kind of know where I'm going from there. Um, oftentimes, people who do come in with chronic pain issues are also presenting with depressive features with anxiety, a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Their sleep is greatly affected. So we're dealing with a whole lot of things. And some of them, you know, may have started before the pain, but it, even in those cases, it's been certainly exacerbated by the pain. Um, but oftentimes, these symptoms have come directly as a result of experiencing chronic pain in their lives. So I like to do a very good, solid assessment. And then from there, psychoeducation is a very big key to helping people to understand what's going on in the brain, how stress um, affects one's perception of pain. And it really kind of helps those individuals who might be a little bit... Um, resistant to the idea of talk therapy really helps them to see that what we're giving them are tools to put into their tool bag so they can increase their coping in effective ways, which will ultimately help with the reduction of the pain cycle. And, you know, you mentioned uh, sort of how stress can affect those people with chronic pain. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? So how does stress affect what's going on in the brain? Absolutely. Well, we know that um, the gate control theory of pain tells us that um, our thoughts, beliefs, and emotions will affect the way that we experience pain, the perception of pain. So if we are whole, even just with regards to what we do to our bodies or with our bodies, we begin to hold ourselves more tightly around the pain. If we have an injury particularly, um, we might be babying it. It begins to create a fear in us that if we overdo it, we will feel pain. Maybe we'll re-injure ourselves. So with that, those assumptions becomes kind of like... Um, a habitual response in a way of being in the world, meaning there's less interaction with others. There's less likelihood that they're going to engage in activities that they once engaged in. There's a caution, there's a fear, there's an inhibitory response. And that begins to become a pattern of thinking that says pretty much, oh my God, I can't do this catastrophic thinking. And that in and of itself kind of perpetuates that pain response more and more and more. So um, thereby zapping our coping is what ultimately happens. And then we're not able to cope with other things in our lives, including the pain. So it ends up heightening the pain response. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about that a lot in the PT world, sort of fear avoidance behaviors. And they sort of talk about these sort of really red flags of fear avoidance behaviors, withdrawing from, from social activities, or, you know, oh, I'd love to go with you guys, but I can't do that. It's going to hurt my back. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I would love to, you know, play with my son, daughter, child, friend, whatever. But if I throw the ball around, it's going to hurt my back. Right. So and there's so, an assumption, an assumption that's being yeah. made as if they can, you know, almost tell the future based upon past experiences that they have had. So the assumption is already there ultimately for people who've been dealing with pain mm -hmm. that I'm just going to be feeling more of it. Right, right. And this, 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 and that just continues to expand. So with those negative assumptions, that ends up playing out in their lives and becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. And, and that sort of catastrophizing. Yes. You know, and it just builds and builds. And, and then finally it comes to, you know, if this pain keeps coming, then I'm not going to be able to go to work. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get a divorce. I'm going to lose my, you know. Right. And, and, and if there's no intervention, mm -hmm. do you feel like you said, do you think that could play out? Absolutely. Well, when we look at functional MRIs of individuals who do have ruminating, negative, catastrophic thinking, we do see that there's a feedback loop in the frontal lobe of the brain, which, you know, it might be like a single lane for those normal subjects, but it expands, you know, ending up looking like the Los Angeles freeway <laughs> individuals who have ruminating thinking. And so that ruminating negativity just circles round and round and round. It's kind of like a feed it, starve it theory of the brain. We feed that negativity and it just continues to grow and permeate more and more of our lives. So what we help people to start to do is to starve it, to shrink it by not giving it attention, by challenging those negative thoughts, by using cognitive distractions like the ABCs backwards or the serial sevens, taking the attention away from the worrisome, bothersome thought and putting it onto another task. Mm. And um, I'd also like to ask, and, and maybe we'll get into this. Well, let's get into this now. Um, mm -hmm. I know you had said that a lot of people that you see, you know, these chronic pain patients, they sort of have, don't really have coping strategies mm -hmm. to kind of deal with it. So what do you do? What are some of your techniques to help them cope better with mm -hmm. the pain they're having? Well, we first help them to see what coping strategies they are using because it's not that they're not using any, they're usually using very unhealthy ones. Mm. So it might be, you know, they become emotional eaters. So they're eating food that makes them feel better, which is usually very high in sugar, a lot of carbs that we know causes an inflammation response throughout mm -hmm. the body and in the mm -hmm. brain and causes more pain. Mm -hmm. um, sleep is another thing. You know, they might be coping with oversleeping because, you know, they don't feel as much pain when they're, you know, in a sleep state as mm -hmm. they will in wakefulness. So mm -hmm. they might be oversleeping and causing their sleep cycle to get thrown off and then they can't sleep and get restful sleep at night or they get the interrupted sleep at night. They don't get that very deep restful stage five sleep where the body begins to detoxify and heal itself. Um, they might feel that they're coping like you had mentioned by withdrawing socially, by not overdoing it, but mm -hmm. actually social support increases our ability to cope with stress. So they're not actually coping. But again, you know, a lot of times that they think these things are just helping them to feel better, but unfortunately it's in the short term. So we help them to see what they are doing mm -hmm. and to educate them 
about how it might help them to feel better in the short term, but it's not in the long term, and to actually see how that's actually destructive for them. Mm -hmm. And then beginning little by little to replace it with healthier coping strategies, such as diaphragmatic breathing, eliciting the relaxation response. We use psychoeducation to help them understand how most of them come to me in the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. They've been with all this negative thinking and the mind doesn't understand the difference between what's real and what's not real. So if you say, what if, what if, what if, or oh my God, oh my God, this is awful, this is terrible, the brain says something terrible and awful is happening. And that elicits the fight or flight response. When that happens, you're going to feel everything more intensely. Mm -hmm. So we want to get them over to the relaxation response and diaphragmatic breathing, mindfulness, mm -hmm that we can do that. So that's one very simple, useful strategy that we use right off the bat. And then we build from then, mm -hmm. where, whether it be social skills and support, um, helping them to understand the role of sleep, food and diet, understanding carbs and sugars and blood sugar levels and all of that. And we just expand from there. Okay. And great, which are great strategies. Um, and what do you do? I know you, we, we mentioned this a couple times, but how, what are some ways that you educate your patients on stress reduction? You know, because everyone always says, you know, I hear this a lot is what makes your pain worse? Stress, mm -hmm. stress, stress, right. like that's usually across the board. Stress mm -hmm. makes it worse. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that you teach your patients and maybe some things that let's say as a physical therapist, like a piece of advice that we can give to the patient as far as controlling stress or reducing stress. Well, I think you guys, um, because of your, your training and experience and understanding the body, I think just watching, you know, being a good observer and watching how they're holding themselves, mm. you know, and then you can tell them directly what you're observing. And typically what you're going to observe is there's going to be tension in a particular area of the body, usually the area of the body that is experiencing the most pain or where they have had an injury. Mm -hmm. So that could be a good indicator because oftentimes they won't even know that they are doing that, but a good indicator of helping them to see or to maybe ask them, you know, are you feeling tension in this part of your body and reflecting from them back what you're seeing, you know, I see that you're holding yourself tightly or your shoulders are, you know, up towards your ears and they should be down or, you know, feeling their back and seeing that it might be very tight, um, Right then and there, it's very useful to help just very, you know, briefly to talk about the role of the central nervous system, the fight or flight response, the relaxation response, and how we can elicit the relaxation response by simply breathing from our diaphragm rather than what we're used to, which mm -hmm. is very shallow breathing from our lungs. Sure, sure. So that's, that's, that's key as far as something more behavioral and, and quick to, to teach Something um, a psychologist might be better off teaching would be um, cognitive restructuring, you know, but as a physical therapist, you can certainly say that, you know, chronic pain is something that um, we begin to anticipate and that anticipation in and of itself can create more tension. The mm -hmm. fear is there. I'm going to be in pain. You know, it's a rainy day. Oh no, the rain's coming on the forecast. I'm going to be in pain. Seasonal changes. I'm going to be feeling pain. 
Um, I overdid it, stayed up too late last night, I'm going to feel pain tomorrow. So that anticipation, cognitive restructuring is something where we take the cognitions that are negative, intrusive, unwanted, unhelpful, and we start to pick them apart, help the patient to see that we can't predict the future. We don't know what we're going to experience. Yet we want to use the past and bring it into the future to say how we're going to feel, but we really are not fortune tellers. We cannot do that. Instead, we use the here and now to help them to challenge those think that thinking and to replace it with something that's more positive. So in the absence of evidence, assume the best, not the worst. And they're often doing just the opposite. Sure. And, and that leads to, to another question. Um, how do you determine an individual's willingness to adapt to new cognitions? Mm-hmm. And, and how do you sort of, how do you interact with a patient unwilling to change their beliefs? You know, like if you've ever gotten the patient, I know uh, there's a, a physical therapist, uh, David Butler, and I was at one of his courses. He wrote the book, Explain Pain with Lorimer Mosley, another PT. And and he said, you know, those people who come in and say, it's God's will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, right. boy, that's tough, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's tough. So how do you determine that willingness to adapt, and, and how do you interact with those unwilling? Right. Well, you know, I, I think as a therapist, and I'm probably in a little bit different of a position here, um, as a therapist, I truly do feel that people need to accept responsibility for where they are at before they can begin to create change in their lives. It's never going to come from somebody else. It's never going to be um, a magic pill that's going to fix it or the right therapist, the right physical therapist, Mm -hmm. psychological therapist. Um, It's going to be empowering them in some way to create change in their life. So again, I use psychoeducation to help them understand um, the difference between internal motivation and locus of control and external locus of control and just basically talk about what research shows us is that those individuals who have that internal locus of control are those individuals who are going to show the most rapid changes in all areas of their life. So I help them to gain that. And in therapy, we do that by helping them bringing it back to themselves over and over and over again and focusing on even those little tiny experiences where they are moving in the right direction and reinforcing that while ignoring some of that negative self-talk, just like you do with a child, really. Mm -hmm. No, Mm -hmm. ignoring bad behavior and praising and reinforcing the positive. It's basic behavioral therapy, and it is effective. And, and, you know, I really like how you said, you know, that the person really needs to take responsibility for where they're at before they can move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, of course we all get those patients of like, oh, well, you know, my back was hurting because, you know, my boss made me do X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, I had to lift this box because my husband wouldn't do it for me or my, you know what I mean? 
So sort right. of always kind of deflecting away from themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you get those people, are they sort of tough nuts to crack? They are. Um, and what I do is constantly bring it back to, well, we always have multiple choices on how to approach something. What could you have done differently? And sometimes you have to help them to generate those choices before they can begin to start doing it themselves. Um, you know, a common one might be why they're not following through with your suggestions. Mm -hmm. So for you guys, it might be, um, happens a lot. Yeah. Like you're expecting them to maybe do some home exercises. Mm -hmm. Well, I couldn't because the kids or work or, you know, this or that, or, so I help to generate some alternative ways of approaching it, of looking at it. What else could they have done? And I focus on that rather than getting into that negative, all these barriers are in my way. Mm -hmm. We take a look instead at, well, how can you go around or maybe through or over or under? There's always multiple ways of looking at something. So we begin to problem solve. Problem solving is a big part of how to create change as well. Sure, sure. Um, so next, next um, as, a, as a PT or other medical professionals, you know, we've sort of been talking a lot today already on, I think, some signs and symptoms of, of some of the patients that you're seeing. So as a PT or other, let's say you're a, a trainer, yoga, PT, whatever, are there signs that we, would look, that we could look out for that would necessitate a referral to a psychologist? Like where we're saying, you know, I think this might be a little outside of our realm. Mm -hmm. And what are those sort of major? Yeah, I, I think um, flags. motivation. Motivation is a big one because, you know, both you and I need patients to be motivated to start to follow through mm -hmm. with the advice that we give them. Like I said, whether it be home exercises or um, on my part, it might be to um, work towards sleeping, um, having a pattern and getting back into a healthy sleep pattern or to change diets and begin to exercise, you know, those types mm -hmm. of things. Um, I think it's important. Motivation is definitely a factor that needs to be involved. So when you're seeing that the patient is just completely unmotivated, it might be a sign of depression. Mm -hmm. It might be a sign too, that they're not feeling that they have any control um, helplessness and hopelessness, but those two are symptoms of depression. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes the safest approach is just to kind of use, um, and I'm sure you probably have many examples to give, but even if you don't have an example to give, sometimes, you know, that um, pretend patient is very helpful. You know, maybe explaining a story how you had a patient that you know, tried just about everything and saw so many different doctors and they had been in such a rut, but you know, little by little with the right therapist's help, you know, gaining a connection with somebody who helped to guide them and empower them and mm -hmm. give them alternative coping strategies, you really saw a difference in this patient. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it would be similar for them. I think that, um, you know, pretend patient is, is very, very helpful sometimes. Sure. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times, you know, even kind of suggesting that to a patient can feel a little taboo. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to say to your patient, you know, I don't know that all this is physical. Right. You know what I mean? 
Right. Because then sometimes patients can be very not happy with that and maybe they won't want to come back to you. You know, I had a patient once who hurt his back and didn't bend forward for two years. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, so I sort of took the approach, I called his visit physician and said, you know, I, I feel like he needs a little bit more than what I can give. Right. You right. know, and then I tried to explain that to the patient that I felt like he needed a little bit more, you know, aside from the physical therapy that maybe he needed something beyond, beyond that to kind of break through. You know, he was one of those people who was like, you know, I'm, I can't bend forward because last time I bent forward, I hurt my back. Right, exactly. That, you know, so, predicting the future, right. Exactly, exactly. So I just felt like it was a little outside of my yeah, my wheelhouse for him. So in, in those kinds of patients, I like your example of the pretend patient and that this worked and maybe it's something you might want to think about mm-hmm. trying. Absolutely. Um, any other sort of ways to approach that subject with a patient without yes, them getting getting them about mind body connection mm-hmm. you know i mean we thankfully in 2014 we have so much literature supporting the mind body connection you know we're moving away from this you know dualistic way of thinking and we're beginning to understand that there is a very real relationship stress and the um, negative coping that is oftentimes in place does affect our immune system, our ability mm-hmm. to, um, you know, our perception of pain, our ability to heal. It blocks the ability's body to do that for itself. So the good thing is, you know, there's be- we're getting away from that stigma more and more and more, and people are starting to understand that psychotherapy is not for crazy people. Psychotherapy is, you know, an avenue towards personal growth for many people, Mm -hmm. you know, and I explain that to to some um, individuals who might be a little bit hesitant that most of the patients that I see these days, um, they can't even go under their insurance because they have no diagnosable illness. They're Mm -hmm. just really looking for ways to help increase their coping or to grow as a person or to maybe remove a barrier in their life or to help them make a decision. There's nothing diagnostic there. Um, So we're seeing that more and more. But I think just educating about the mind-body connection and the importance of understanding the role of stress and tension and negative perceptions and beliefs and emotions such as depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, and that's that's a great point. You know, I think people do still, like you said, have that association of, well, if I'm going to see a psychologist, there must be something really wrong with me. Mm-hmm. But you're right. In this day and age, that's just not true. Absolutely, we're getting yeah. further and further away from that. And you know, there are still very, you know, chronically and persistently mentally ill individuals. But those are not the kind of people that you're seeing in outpatient um, private practices. Mm-hmm. You know, those are individuals who are, you know, still in state hospitals and um, agencies, community mental health programs. Um, mm-hmm. But I know my practice and most practices like mine, you know, we see ordinary everyday individuals who are just trying to get by or improve mm-hmm. the way that they're living. Mm-hmm. Great. That's a great point. Um, thank you for making that. Um, now, have you found amongst your patient with chronic pain any commonalities that, that you kind of see consistently? Yeah, yeah. Um, I see the negative ways of coping, the mm-hmm. poor diets. Yeah. Um, a lot of times individuals will be 
going from, you know, living very fully functioning lives vocationally. And now they might be completely out of work. Mm. Being completely out of work kind of sets the stage for um, poor sleep patterns, um, poor eating, isolation and social withdrawal because they're not um, going someplace every day where they're, you know, being able to interact with people. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned it before that they begin to maybe say no to plans because, you know, I'm not feeling good. I don't want to be a bummer on everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know how I'm going to feel or if I'm going to be able to handle the car ride or, you know, I might have to leave early and I don't want to drag everybody else out. What if I don't feel good? Mm-hmm. So they begin to withdraw more and more. And that we, we know that there's a direct relationship between isolation and depression mm-hmm. and isolation and anxiety, you know, so individuals, when they do start feeling better or when they do enter treatment and we suggest that they do start getting back out into the world, they get a little bit panicky and anxious about that. And that's something that they often do not expect. So mm-hmm. um, social withdrawal is a big one. Unfortunately, addiction mm. is a big one because um, medical doctors, many of them, of course, not all, but, um, many of them do not receive the proper training with regards to addiction. And they're using very, very heavy drugs to treat chronic pain that should be used to, to treat acute pain mm-hmm. rather than chronic pain, because over time, tolerance will develop. They're going to need more and more Mm -hmm. to get the same results. And with tolerance comes drug dependency and addiction. And now you have a completely separate and additional layer added onto that. So, um, I think I spend, you know, quite a bit. I know I spend quite a bit of time educating my patients about the role of addiction and tolerance and withdrawal and, um, oftentimes they have to go into rehab in order to be able to come off of some of the medications that they've been prescribed over the years. So, so yeah, I would say addiction, sleep problems, diet, social withdrawal, depressive features because mm-hmm. they get very, you know, helpless, hopeless. They've seen doctor after doctor after doctor, you know, trying and hoping that they're going to find the one that's going to help them. And they just hit a wall over and over and over again, leading to, you know, feeling very hopeless about it. Sure. And, and, you know, I think another interesting thing when you were speaking, you said, you know, sometimes maybe they're not going to work. They have no, they don't have a set place to go every day. And I would think that that also has to chip away at your self-worth. Yes. You know, like you're not, you may feel like you're not contributing anything that you're, maybe you're not worth, you know, even being around other people. You're, you know, do you find that a lot as well? Absolutely. And there's some gender differences here too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that definitely affects men more than women. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, certainly not to overgeneralize, that's not always the case. I think um, another gender difference since I'm on that subject is I think women tend to take on much more caregiving, whether it be of elderly parents, of the children, of their friends, you know, they, they, carry a lot on their shoulders. Um, that's one of the things that we help people to do is to start to say no. Mm, hard to thing to do. 
letting go, not jumping in, mm-hmm. starting to have that self-care rather mm-hmm. than the focus always being on others. Because a lot of times women feel very guilty when you start talking about taking the time to, you know, relax, taking a hot bath, maybe getting to the gym, taking a yoga class, going out and socializing, all very healthy things pulls at, um, particularly women, not always, but pulls at their guilt strings and mm-hmm. they're feeling they should be thinking about others rather than themselves. So yeah, I think that gender definitely does play a role in how we're going to respond to the limitations that we have and, you know, the changes that we need to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I never even thought about that, but that's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what are some, questions that you commonly get, let's say or questions or, or even comments that you commonly get from your patients, you know, so let's say you have that chronic pain patient, they've been to Dr. A, B, C, and D, they've mm-hmm. tried this, they've tried that, they're in front of you, are there any comments that or questions that you get commonly? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I have an awful lot of people who want to know if it is all in their head or if they mm-hmm. are crazy. Mm-hmm. Because they have the perception that this is what they've been told. And I don't know if doctors are actually telling them that or they're saying that, you know, their mental state plays a role. And then because of the stigma, they jump right on and say, well, then it's all in my head. Mm-hmm. So, again, I take the opportunity to educate them about what exactly that means. You know, that means that their perception of the pain is and their coping strategies that they're using and their response to stress, how all of those play a role. So that's a big one. You know, am I crazy mm-hmm. is in my head. Um, I think another one about particularly when we start talking about it is the medication and the addiction component. You know, when they start to become more educated and more aware, they start to recognize that maybe they have in fact developed a tolerance or maybe that's why their medication is not working as much anymore. Mm -hmm. That's a common one as well. Um, A lot of people just want to know that, you know, how long is this going to take and is this going to actually be effective? And I can't answer that in any definitive way. It depends on their attitude and approach about it, whether or not they're taking responsibility and feeling empowered to make changes in their lives um, and if they're willing to follow through. What I tell people always is, you know, don't leave therapy and I would imagine that's any kind of therapy just because you are feeling better. Mm. You know, you should use as a guide knowing when it might be time to say goodbye when you have sustained the changes that you have made that are creating that um, better feeling in you. And what would be considered sustained? I would say, you know, I think typically six to nine months of psychotherapy has been shown um, to increase one's ability to cope and respond to stress um, in pretty much about 80% of the cases. I think that that's pretty consistent with with what research is showing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, we go through different stages of psychotherapy from pre-contemplation, you know, trying to figure out, do I want to do this? Is this something that, you know, I'm willing to embark on? Am I going to buy what she's telling me about, Mm -hmm. you know, 
how effective this can be or just changing my thinking. How could that possibly change the way that I feel? Um, so the pre-contemplation stage is the first stage. And then you go through a succession of stages until there's that sustainability. So um, usually building the relationship, deciding whether or not to embark on the journey might be the first month or so. And we know that typically around the third, fourth month, people are starting to feel better. Sometimes the very first session people feel better because mm -hmm. we've given them some kind of hope. Uh, but typically third, fourth month, they're starting to actually feel better. And again, we want them to sustain that. So habits begin to be formed around three weeks after you've changed mm. a behavioral pattern. And that's on average. Okay. So I'd like to see somebody sustaining a new change, whether it be changing their diet or beginning to exercise or sleeping um, reg more regularly. I'd like mm -hmm. to see that sustained for at least a month before I start talking about termination. Got it. And is that why um, a lot of, like I always get these, you know, different programs and things like that. Like I think Oprah is doing a, a meditation program and it's 21 days. Yeah. And it always seems like all of these programs are 21 days. Is yeah. that sort of the thinking behind that? Exactly. That's the neurobiology of it. Okay. This will start to, connections will start to be loosened. That brain has the shearing effect with the dendrites and the axons that are connected to those behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, something that forms directly in the brain and it begins to shear when you stop an old pattern in about three weeks on average. Okay. You know, we talk a lot about, about that in, in the PT world about sort of that plasticity of the brain and how the brain can change. And, you know, I try and bring that up to my patients. Um, and, and when I sort of say to them, you know, that the pain you're experiencing is an output of your brain. Yes. You know, it's not coming, it's not like the knee is generating pain. Right. Or your elbow is generating pain, that it is an output of the brain. And I have had many patients say to me, so you're saying it's all in my head. Right, exactly. And 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 the answer is technically yes. Yes. But not in the way you think. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But people get can some people get very very defensive on that. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And and I don't know is is that sort of automatic defensiveness would you say that's a, a yellow flag or a red flag or a no, I would just say that that's the need for more education, mm -hmm. no? And a lot of people are very visual, mm -hmm. so I tend to just get paper and pencil and draw it out for them. I will draw the gate control theory of mm -hmm. pain, and I will explain to them how, you know, basically sensory messages travel from the nerves to the spinal cord, which is the, you know, body's pain highway, and then they're reprocessed and sent mm -hmm. through the open gates to the thalamus. Mm -hmm. and. There's, there, it's in the brain, and now your emotional state, your mental state. Everything. Perception, yeah, mm -hmm. all of that will create what happens to it from there. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes with chronic pain, it just cycles through and through mm -hmm. and through. And that's where, and I know another, you know, terminology that's common in both of our professions is um, body memories. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's why we like to have someone to get a different experience of what it is that they're doing so they can break that cycle of expecting mm -hmm. more the same. Yeah. Same emotionally. We can try to create a different emotional experience to begin to break that cycle of predicting the future. Right. So sort of changing the context, yes. you know, which is something 
I think as a, as a PT, we do all the time. You know, I had a, a friend of mine who threw his, quote unquote, threw his back out. Mm -hmm. um, so he came to see me and he said, the worst thing is bending forward. And, and I said, all right. So I sort of had him sit down and I was like, you know, I just want you to think about just dangling your arms down towards the ground. Mm -hmm. See how that feels. And then I want you to think about... So I basically changed the context. So, and he went bent forward and came back up and bent forward and came back up and did it a bunch of times. And I said, you know, you're bending forward. This is the one thing you said you cannot do. Yes. And yep. he was like, oh, uh huh. oh, okay. All right. And then he left and he was like, you know, I, I feel a little bit better, you know, and I think it's the same, how we change the context of someone's movement. Yes. I guess psychologists can sort of change the context of those thoughts and beliefs. Exactly. Is that right? And therefore the experience and perception of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. It becomes much different. Absolutely. Right. And, and what about, aside from your patients, what are some common questions that you might get from maybe other health professionals or, or other people in your life about kind of what you do and how you can help those with chronic pain? Hmm. Like, do, do, do you ever get a doctor say, you know, what exactly are you going to do? Uh, or Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think that more doctors have really taken to um, cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. than they have the more traditional approaches to therapy, mm -hmm. psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. you know, and interpreting dreams and talking about childhood, and, you know, all of that. Um, I think that there's very negative connotations attached to that. And mm -hmm. oftentimes I think it's, it's directly related to the fact that, not that it's not effective, but that you can't measure these things. Mm -hmm. And when you can't measure, you can't research and have a control group and an experimental mm -hmm. group, and therefore you can't prove something. Mm -hmm. And any good scientist is going to want proof that something's going to work. So sure. with cognitive behavioral therapy, with something like mindfulness-based stress reduction, John Kabat-Zinn's MBSR program, there is so much research showing mm -hmm. that it is effective. So. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, you know, it, it piques the interest of medical professionals, mm -hmm. and they're looking specifically for therapists who will be using those approaches. Um, and what they're looking for from me, if they have kind of just passively heard about it, mm -hmm. is some kind of an understanding. You know, how does it work? So, you know, with those individuals, I'll use terms like, you know, pl neuroplasticity and mm -hmm. feedback loops and gate control theory of pain because they understand that kind of language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Um, and then here's a question that, you know, definitely a couple of people asked via the social media is, um, do you have any recommendations on how a physical therapist can find a psychologist, let's mm -hmm. say specializing in persistent pain in their area? Do you know, do you have any resources or websites that one might be able to go to to learn more? Well, I know um, a lot of people tend to use psychology today, mm -hmm. um, and I think that might even be the first thing that pops up if you just type in, you know, psychologists in whatever area mm -hmm. you're residing in. And 
when I signed up for psychology today, you could put right in there any of the specialties that you have, what patient populations you serve, you know, a brief description of your practice and mm -hmm. maybe what informs your beliefs and how you do therapy. Okay. That's a very good resource because I think a lot of us use it. It's very, um, it's modestly priced. So a lot of clinicians can afford to use it as well. <laughs> sure. Sure. And so we have a couple of minutes here. To, um, to kind of wrap things up, what would you say are like some of the, if you were to pick a couple of take-home messages, what, what are your take-home messages for today? I would say, you know, and, and I think I've gotten this mostly as a patient myself rather mm -hmm. than as a clinician, that we can begin to change our perception of pain. Perhaps not completely entirely, but we can begin to um, live our life maybe in a different way than we ever imagined we would be, but still having some um, hope and something to look forward to. And we do that by making changes in our lives, life by looking at each and every part of our life, I think is very important. You know, I, I don't think that... Um, focusing just on the physical is going to be enough ever. And I don't think even focusing just on the mind or the emotions is going to be enough. I think we need to look at the big picture, mm -hmm. the role of diet, sleep, exercise, spirituality, socialization, the physical, the emotional, um, and maybe some stuff from the past that we might need to work through, you know, any baggage that we're carrying along. I think looking at all of that and beginning to, um, you know, chip away and make some changes little by little where we feel that we can while also getting the support that we need. There's a lot of great groups out there, you know, particularly in bigger cities mm -hmm. where people can um, talk openly with other people who are experiencing um, similar issues, whether it be chronic pain or addiction or, you know, whatever it is to get the support that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and great, excellent, excellent way to kind of to wrap things up. Now, if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? www.drtiffanygriffiths.com. Great. And again, I want to thank you so much. And, and like I said, believe me, there were more questions. We just ran out of time here, you know. So I, when we were kind of going back and forth and emailing, I was like, I might have to have you on again because there were a lot more questions and then we have time for in one show. So um, I just want to thank you so much. And, and you know, it, it's, it is, it's great to know that, you know, the stuff that you're doing really aligns with I think the biopsychosocial model of physical therapy care, and it's really refreshing to hear. So, so yeah. I just wanted to thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Sure, and everyone, thanks so much for listening, and uh, be sure to tune into our next episode on next Monday. And in the meantime, stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. <laughs>